It's time for the tactics meeting. Episode 18, Shoreline Response is Not Just SCAD, with Dr. Ed Owens of Owens Coastal Consulting. I'm your planning section chief, Dan Smiley, and I'll be your host as we talk to subject matter experts about response tactics and technology. But before we start, I want to tell you about an exciting webinar that's being presented by the Pacific States British Columbia Oil Spill Task Force. It's on lessons learned from virtual drills and prevention efforts during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's being held on June 30th from 10.30 a.m. to 12 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. I'll be presenting on the future of virtual command posts and hope that you can join us on Zoom. The fact that this is a virtual event should give you some idea of what the future may bring. For a meeting link, go to oilspilltaskforce.org and click on events. Dr. Ed Owens of Owens Coastal Consultants, welcome to the program. Hello, Dan. Hope you're doing well. Oh, I'm doing well. I'm very excited to have you here. I spent a lot of time in response and exercises and in exercises in particular, we have a tendency to say that SCAT is out of play. Shoreline cleanup assessment techniques are out of play. And this is one of those areas of oil spill response that I feel uh, really uneducated uh, about. It's one of those things that I know has to happen, but we, we set it off to the side as if it's uh, uh, kind of a, a mystical thing, but, you know, getting, finding a, getting the SCAT teams a bit like uh, locating a unicorn. So I'm hoping that you can help fill in the gaps for me and tell me what is important. And if we could uh, start off by backing up a little bit and tell us really a little bit about who you are and how you managed to get into oil spill response in the first place. Well, it wasn't voluntary. Uh, as is, I think, the case for many people. I was a young um, scientist. Uh, I'd done most of my work as a physical geographer, geologist, was working on shorelines, working on beaches. And um, I had started a job with the Canadian Hydrographic Service in Ottawa as, um, as a marine geologist. And I'd only been there about six months when... Um, what was in those days referred to as a leaky greeky. The, a leaky uh, greeky? Yeah, the old uh, coastal um, tankers that used to ply the, the coastal zone. And a lot of them were, were Greek owned and were a bit rusty around the uh, edges. And uh, this particular ship, the Arrow, had already had a couple of incidents and it sailed into Chetabucto Bay without really a full set of nav aids and uh, managed to hit a rock and um you know this was 1970 so we just had uh santa barbara bark blowout it had the torrey canyon and all of a sudden people became aware of oil spills and um my boss who was the dominion hydrographer said you know all about shorelines why don't you go down there and see if you can help them out uh, so I flew to Nova Scotia and uh, Chetabucto Bay, and I worked on mapping the oil shorelines and giving shoreline cleanup recommendations to the operations folks. Um, 
I've got to say that I didn't know anything about oil spills or shoreline cleanup in 1970, but then nor did anybody else. So you could hardly go wrong. <laughs> well, you could. We did. We made a few mistakes and learned very quickly not to use a lot of bulldozers to take away beach materials. But and then the next spill comes along in uh, Canada, and they say, "Oh well, you know more about this than anybody else." Well, that's not a big compliment. Um, <laughs> and I managed to continue a career in as a scientist, uh, university scientist, but. I, they, Spills just kept happening from time to time. And in the end, I gave up trying to have two lives and became a consultant uh, way back in 1979. And basically from that point on, uh, I've, I've shorelines and oil spills have been my, uh, my predominant activity. And 89, along comes Exxon Valdez, that took three years out of my life. And again, uh, then Deepwater Horizon, that took another three years out of my life. But and I'm not saying negatively, but they're a big commitment because shoreline, the shoreline response goes on for a long time after the spill. I was at Deepwater Horizon. I arrived, I think, on about day 10, and I was in the offshore a recovery group and we were there really until just after the leak was stopped in September right but you were there like another three years right oh yes yes uh I mean we took our toys and went home well that and and, and this is part of the issue that uh we're trying to address these days one of the key lessons learned from Deepwater Horizon was to, was to get a shoreline response program, which includes the shoreline surveys, the SCAP, to get them mobilized right at the beginning, at the same time that the onwater operations are taking place. We need to be actively uh, mobilizing and implementing a shoreline response program. And we don't do that very often. Uh, we very often focus on the on-water activities. And then when they're winding down, resources then get shifted to the, the shoreline. And I don't just mean equipment, it's like management time is an important resource. And what we should be doing is looking for management time right at the very beginning. And uh, Richard Santner with BP has this phrase called getting it right from the start. And if you can do that, then you can address shoreline oiling when the bulk oil has arrived, uh, before it gets redistributed, before it um, uh, is potentially buried. Um, but while it's still in a bulk oil form, we can be the most effective. And then that reduces the overall size of the affected area, so it doesn't get redistributed by waves and currents. Um, it, and, and it, it reduces the length of the shoreline response program. So there's a, a huge incentive to get it right from the beginning and to implement a shoreline response program at the same time as we're working in the on-water uh, theater as well. And I think that's a big message that we 
we, we learn from Deepwater Horizon and I think we've learned it several times now, but it's, it's hard to implement because so often the incident command system focuses on setting up um, the on-water operations. And I think a lot of the focus that we have in preparedness, particularly you know, in drills and exercises, we often don't play SCAT. We often don't play the shoreline response program, which means from a cultural viewpoint, it's not at the forefront of the minds of those who are mobilized on a real incident. So I, I, I'm personally a strong advocate of making sure in each drill and exercise that there is a component at the beginning. One of the initial incident objectives should be to assess the need for a shoreline response program. And if the shoreline is oil, or if the shoreline is about to be oil, then set up that shoreline response program right away. Get shoreline, the operations branch that deals with the shoreline, get them mobilized right away so that we can capture that bulk oil at the time when it's only just arrived on shore or as it is arriving on shore to be most effective. Well, I'm not sure that we're setting the team up in the early stages in the correct way, because even when we mobilize OSRO resources and assign an on-water or I mean, a shoreline recovery group supervisor, we don't tend to mobilize for or scat and I think people like myself, who I'm going to find myself as the as the Wismic Incident Commander or the uh, or a Gallagher Incident Commander, don't have a good view of what setting that up is. Although some of my other uh, uh, Gallagher folks, I think, very much do know. But you have to talk to me like I'm a third grader. In, in this regard. So I came into this thinking we were just going to talk about SCAT, and it sounds like SCAT, and if you could take a minute to give us a, a, an hour good definition of SCAT, but it sounds like SCAT is really just a piece of a broader response that you've been referring to as shoreline cleanup. That's right, Dan. Um, SCAT's the obvious one, um, because SCAT is we all, all very often say is the eyes and the ears of the command post. I and mean, the SCAT teams are in the field, looking for the oil, describing the oil, making the recommendations for shoreline treatment. And that SCAT data is um, invaluable in terms of setting the strategy and the tactics for the shoreline response. SCAT sets the cadence for the shoreline response operation. Um, but we, we very often think of SCAT as just being the field teams, um, you know, a, a responsible party representative, a, a, a state, federal, maybe a landowner, stakeholder, um, local community, First Nations uh, representatives who go out and collect the data and then it gets used in the, the planning section environmental unit. But it's more than that. Um, because SCAT interacts with operations 
both in the command post and in the field. Uh, not only are we the eyes and the ears of the command post bringing the information in, but we're also the link in the field. So that when uh, in a 204 uh, and the assignment list, when an assignment is, is uh, developed, and we call those shoreline treatment recommendations, STRs, if we need to do a cleanup, uh, SCAT will generate an STR, which is a description of what is recommended. It goes into the EU. It's looked at by the environmental group um, in terms of resources at risk, in terms of Endangered Species Act, National Historic Preservation Act, and good practices that uh, would apply to that section of shoreline in the STR provide guidance and constraints on what operations does. And so that goes, this STR then goes in through the tactics meeting, the planning meeting, gets into the instant action plan. And it, it's a work order. It's, it's one of the tasks in the 204 that becomes a work order. So that then, that piece of paper or electronic form goes to operations. And they're gonna look at it and say, um, what's a plover? You know, we know what seagulls are, but we don't know what plovers are. And so one of the roles that SCAD has is, is in the field to work with uh, the strike forces or you know, the, the, the task force leaders um, and, and explain to them what is in that shoreline treatment recommendation. What is, what is the intent of the shoreline treatment? recommendations and the constraints so that they can understand the messages that are coming from the environmental unit. Because there is, you know, once a 204 is issued and assignments are given to operations, there is no formal support from that point onwards in, in, in the current ICS system. And so what we developed, and we developed this really on Deepwater Horizon, it became necessary because of the scale of the problem that we needed to have not just the SCAT teams. Um, in fact, what happened in August of uh, 2010 was there was a breakdown of communications. I mean, the size of the response. Uh, we, were, we were spread from you know, the Texas border right into the Florida panhandle. And it was assumed that the SCAT teams would be able to handle that. Well, they couldn't. Um, very often they weren't working in close proximity to the shoreline operations team. And, and the communications broke down. Operations felt they'd been not properly taken care of. And they didn't understand because no one had taken the time to explain in the field what some of these uh, environmentally sensitive uh, constraints meant or what the cultural resource constraints meant. And we, we had a breakdown in Louisiana and it was resolved by setting up something we called SCAT Ops Liaison. We added a layer. We added a layer that was assigned specifically to work in the field with the operations folks and to explain to them what needed to be done. 
that was a turning point. So, Ed, we did a lot of things in Deepwater Horizon for for operational reasons, for political reasons that were really a one-off that we wouldn't necessarily do again. Would you say that this SCAT ops liaison position that was created during Deepwater Horizon is a best practice worth emulating going forward? I would indeed, Dan. That's um, It's a lesson that we, when we look back at other spills, uh, uh, both before and since Deepwater, that's, that function has been there but it hasn't been really defined. And so it's a bit of an ad hoc thing. Oh, uh, the SCAT teams are, you know, we'll drop by and have a have a chat with the, uh, you know, with the field folks. Um, well, we can't get there for a week because we've, we're working at the, the edge. We're still looking for, uh, we're looking at oil shorelines. We may not be in the same area. And so by giving that assignment, um, a task, it's, it becomes one of the SCAT assignments. Um, we can fill that. We don't need to send a whole SCAT team out there. We can just have uh, one or two people who act in that function. Now, it may not be needed every day or everywhere, but we should be aware that one of our responsibilities in a SCAT program is to support operations, to give them that, um, understanding of what is the intent of the shoreline treatment recommendation and and it works it works the other way as well that we learn in the field from operations how they're doing uh what are the challenges they're facing are there improvements that they see would benefit the program and that can be taken back into the command post and so we can adjust and you know tweak what we're doing uh, as we go along so it's a two-way conversation um it's it's like wearing two hats uh, wearing an operations hat who see things from the practical viewpoint the feasibility um and and, and the environmental viewpoint which looks at um you know what is the net environmental benefit what is the you know the best spill impact mitigation things and the, the NEB and the S the SEMA, you know, this provides that bridge, that link between what's going on in the command post and what's going on in the field. And so I do think it is something that even if it's a part-time role for the SCAT team leads, it's definitely a function that should be identified and recognized. So do we send these SCAT briefers to each division where they brief out? We provide this briefing or, or this education at the daily ops briefing? Do we do it when there's just a new STR? They might work off a single STR for a week or two weeks on yeah. a particular shoreline segment. So we do, do it when a new STR comes out. How do you see that taking place in a practical way? Well, yeah, good point. I mean, you know, we know every spill is different. Um, in, on a smaller spill, the, the ops briefing may take place in the command post. Um, 
Although a lot of the field guys don't like to go to the command post. Uh, it seems to be their, their nature to avoid it. So we go to them. But again, it's a scaling issue. Um, you know, when, when SCAT surveyors are remote from operations activities, then that's where we need to inject a personal persons to act in that role. On smaller spills, it's a lot easier. We can generally manage multiple assignments uh, you know, with, without increasing the staff load. But, but as scale increases, and um, I mean, I look to things like Samandang Ayu in the Aleutians, I mean, 800 kilometers. I mean, the operations divisions were, you know, from Dutch all the way down the Aleutian chain. And, and, and there was an example where, um, although we didn't have a name for it, but SCAT Ops Liaison was definitely in play. And we assigned SCAT teams to, you know, work with next to operations until operations felt comfortable that they were uh, implementing those good or best practices. And the SCAT team also felt comfortable that operations understood the intent of what was coming out of the environmental unit in the planning section. So it's, all, it's always going to be different, but the, the, I think the key thing is recognition that it's a need to support operations. So now we need another acronym. Scopple? No. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't do that. I, I, people's, there's, there's some people are still averse to the term scat. I don't understand it. Well, can you give us a definition of scat? I mean, we're, yeah. we're, we're, it's really on the periphery now, but what, yeah. how would you, what is scat? How, how would you describe that process? It's the documentation of uh, shoreline oiling, going out there, detecting where the oil is, delineating the uh, distribution of oil, and characterizing that oil. Comparing that to the treatment targets. I mean, I don't like the word, uh, you know, clean up endpoints. It, I don't like the word clean up endpoint or the words because clean up assumes it's gonna be clean afterwards. It, it rarely is. And endpoints in, implies closure. Um, we sort of like to use a more politically correct terms like, uh, treatment targets for operations, which it won't stop people saying clean up endpoints, but the intent is that we're, we're, we are providing criteria for operational uh, completion. And so the SCAT teams determine in the field whether or not a section of shoreline, an oiled zone, meets those criteria or doesn't meet them. If it doesn't meet them, then their responsibility is to recommend a, sh a shoreline treatment, the shoreline treatment recommendation form. And so SCAT has two functions. It, I mean, find, detecting, delineating, describing, documenting the oil, but then also translating the, um, the intent of the command, which is what is going to be treated or cleaned and what's going to be left for natural recovery because it's below those treatment criteria. So, it's, you know, it, I don't think a lot of people actually know what SCAT does because they do tend, you said at the beginning, you know, they tend to be um, off on their own a little bit. Well, we are. Um, 
we work on a different rhythm to the rest of the uh, the command. I mean, you know, at the beginning, the cadence is um, basically ruled by the instant action plan, by the daily planning, the planning P, the planning cycle. That rules what goes on. But we often, uh, the SCAT teams often don't get back that day until late afternoon, early evening sometimes, by which time the tactics and the planning for that next operational period have already been agreed and decided. And so it can be a couple of days sometimes before the SCAT process reaches the tactics meeting. And you, you mentioned an STR might go on for a week or several days or a week in some cases. And, and so the rhythm at which this, this series of recommendations are generated and implemented is not the same as the daily um, on water activities, which are planned for the, you know, the start of the, the next operating period the next morning. We tend to work on more of a rolling um, a rolling cadence rather than a daily cadence. And I think it, it does, that physically sets the shoreline response program a little bit out of whack with everybody else. And they tend to think that we're, and I've heard this before, um, you know, oh, scats out doing what they do. Well, yes, we are. But, uh, <laughs> it doesn't mean to say that we're not an integral part of, of the whole system, but again, it's, it's the rhythm is, they're not in the same, they're not synchronized at the same pace. And this tends to, I, I've seen people think that we're just a little bit um, arrogant, I've heard the word say, you know, but it's not that, it's, it's not that we are, it's just that we're, we're not working in the same daily pattern as everybody else's and that does set us apart and it needs to be understood that it's not out of anything other than we're working on a on a different schedule well you've you've almost invented scat over the years i mean i think you have the right to be a little bit arrogant no i don't want to. i mean <laughs> you know scat came about i mean i, I go back you know when i start 1970 I, i've got maps of the distribution and concentration of oil on shorelines that I made in 1970. We've always done SCAD. We always have had to do SCAD. But in 1989, when we were faced with uh, several thousands of kilometers of shoreline in Prince William Sound and the Gulf of Alaska, we needed to be systematic. We needed to take something which we'd been doing on an ad hoc basis into something which was well organized. And that was the shift from shoreline surveys to the shoreline cleanup assessment technique. I mean, we had eight teams in, um, by May of 1989, we had four teams in Prince William Sound and four teams in the Gulf of Alaska. We didn't have GPSs, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have all the communications that we take for granted today. And so we had to set up a system. We had to be well organized. And so SCAT was born out of necessity. I mean, we knew how to map, and we knew how to describe the shoreline oiling. Those two came together 
uh, in what became a, a formal SCAP program. It was, you know, we, we, we made, we've been using forms for years. We just started using the same form for eight different teams working in different places. And then when they rotated out, they could calibrate the next team. And so all of a sudden we started to standardize the forms. We started to standardize the terminology. We, we, we had a computer, one laptop, which was a source of, uh, had to pry it out of uh, the budget a bit. We got one laptop. So we started generating a database on a computer. 1989 this this was novel this was all new stuff yeah you probably had like a 40 megabyte hard drive and yeah. the uh, uh oh. a pentium one right and um you know and, and a whopping the gig of ram maybe well if you're lucky no, we had lots and lots and lots of hard drives <laughs> <laughs> we we ended up with about four computers that year um I mean, the GIS system that was used, it wasn't in place until September. Again, because this was a novelty of using computers. Um, but we, we were forced to become systematic in order to be effective. And, and that's how SCAT was born. And, um, you know, the acronym stuck much to uh, certain oil company um, attempts to... <laughs> to change it to something perhaps less childish than uh, something that has other meanings in other parts of the world. Well, so, who came up with it? Who was um, the father of the term? Uh, well, I don't know who to pass the blame on to because um, there were two of us. <laughs> and Friday night with not much to do. And in those days, things were very dry. You have to uh, understand spills the command post and the spill was pretty dry in terms of uh, the social life and um, we just started writing up acronyms on the wall and uh you know how you sometimes do that and we came up with this one and it said scat and somebody went oh shit um <laughs> went, that's it we got it <laughs> because we were you know trying to be uh, have a little levity have a have a little humor in this. And so, I mean, the next day when we started calling it this, um, the, the command post was like open plan, you know, one of these open plan command posts. And um, the the uh, the Exxon project manager, Otto Harrison, a very large six foot something uh, person came down and asked if I would go for a, just a little chat with him. And we walked up and down the aisleways and he had his arm around me, which was quite intimidating. He said, you need to come up with another acronym. Um, and I said, I'll, I'll work on it. Well, unfortunately, it was already out. And people it was, started- It was on it. your documents and it was all right. Uh, it was on the, and so the next morning, Otto comes down. He says, hey, I'd like to have another word. And you can just see people going, oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to have to take another one for the team. <laughs> so I accept, well, Fred Werenberg was the other chap who was in the room at the time. And uh, he went on to work with FEMA, but it originated one Friday evening, just like that. So it has an origin. It wasn't an evolution as such.
that it's stuck. And for whatever it's worth, I think it's funny still. I still get a chuckle of the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the first time I've heard the story. So now everybody can get a can get yeah. a chuckle out of it. So when we're putting these teams together, who who do we pull onto these teams? I mean, we get a responsible party representative. Uh, I might call you, but who else is going to be on this team? Well, there's a cadre that there are there's a lot of people that have scat experience. And so uh, but believe it or not, on Deepwater Horizon, there were at least 10 people from Exxon Valdez days that were on the, the SCAT teams uh, in, in, uh, in 2010. You know, um, there's a lot of experience out there. And there's obviously, you know, people have come up through the ranks and there are people. There's I, I just give, I think it's important to recognize that the leadership of a SCAT team should probably come from the responsible party. Although there's a, a lot of agency folks are trained both at the, uh, the federal and, and the state level or the provincial level in Canada. Um, one of the issues that has always come up is that there's uh, a typically a rotation that takes place with the government agencies and very often after you know one has trained up or calibrated uh, a responsible uh, yeah, sorry a, 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 a regulatory agency uh, individual they get rotated out because many reasons are put forth you know we want to give more people experience we uh, boy that person's had so much overtime the other people in the in the group would like to get a bit of overtime too. I mean, there's many reasons, but the responsible party typically hires consultants such as myself and many others, um, because we provide consistency. We provide longevity uh, that's calibrated. Whereas the replacements that uh, are, are very typical of the, 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 the federal and the state agencies they don't have that that permanency which is necessary for a spill that goes on for you know very often a couple of three months or even longer i mean most spills of any size uh, costco busan you know new carissa selandang i these are all six to nine months or, or or a year that went on and and you need to have that calibrated consistency so who Let's talk about on? Costco Busan for for a second, because I, yeah. I was at Costco Busan and I was there for like a week and a half. Yeah, I came with the skimming vessels. Right. We did our on water thing. And then after that, there was no more water oil on the water to recover. And we took our toys and we left. Yeah. How long were you there? Well, what was it? November it started. Um, I was there through September of that year and then we went back again the following year so yeah nine months um and i, I will add we actually had scat ops liaison because we assigned a scat team there were four operational divisions and four scat teams and so one scat team was responsible for one division and and that built that relationship that was really important between the SCAT, Environmental Unit, Shoreline Program, and the operations people in the field. But yeah, we were there 
I mean, no, actually, yeah, I, I spent, I remember being there in September and we were down to just about half a dozen oiled segments by that point. But that's, you know, when I pack my go bag, um, you know, it, it it's not just what I need for the week. It's what I need for a month before I probably wouldn't be my first rotation would probably be at the end of a month by which time you'd have somebody trained to you know to roll over there uh, yeah my role would probably be the scat coordinator um, uh, i'm not so agile in the field with one eye these days i tend to not work well on boulders and riprap as i used to so but uh you know, I, I but you, I but you put forward that Admiral Nelson vibe, which is very cool. <laughs> well, and, you, and you have plausible deniability. You can put that <laughs> telescope to your to that eye. Darn hardy if I can uh, see anything. I will never admit to having done that several times. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it, you know, you go in there knowing you're going to be there for a long, and this is where the responsible party again, I think needs to take the initiative at the very beginning, knowing that the shoreline response program is going to be there on, on anything other than a small spill, but at, at least three, likely six, and most possibly nine months to a year. You've got to have that knowledge, that understanding from the very get-go. So when you set something up, it needs SCAP and the SRP, they need to have identity. They need to be on the, the first uh, 202, they need to be on the uh, incident objectives. We need to be on the organization list. We need to be on the organization chart. We need to be recognized. And I, I'm, not I'm not trying to blow us up to be anything bigger than we are, but I don't think there is that recognition at the beginning of the importance and the longevity. As you say, you pack up your toys and go home. Pack up our toys and go home? Yeah, I, well, we turn the lights out. Well, I've got the incident management handbook in my hand and I don't see SCAT. Um, I mean, let me just, uh, I've got it flagged in mine. Um, it, ooh, well, it depends which, I've got the Coast Guard one. I got the Coast Guard 2014. Yeah, I've got that one. On yeah. page uh, 20 dash, what is it? 20-28, there is a shoreline cleanup assessment technique coordinator. But it doesn't, that's all it is. It doesn't tell you what a SCAT team is. It doesn't tell you what a SCAT team does. It says ensure SCAT missions are conducted. But what are SCAT missions? Well, we have recon surveys. We've got shoreline cleanup assessment surveys. We've got monitoring surveys, we've got inspection surveys, we have beach profiling surveys, we've got SCAT ops liaison assignments. I'm gonna have to top of my head, there's at least six different types of SCAT missions that can be assigned. It does say develop STRs, but it doesn't define, uh, it says above, uh, consult to ensure that SCAT activities and shoreline treatment recommendations support best management practices. Well, what is an STR? It's something that we invented. We invented that on um, the Salandang Eye. We invented the STR form and we invented the shoreline 
uh, well, the STR inspection report form, which provides closure. So we, we, we have the initial surveys to reconnaissance or ground surveys to define and delimit, but it doesn't tell you how to finish in the manual. Um, and so we developed on Salandang the idea of having the same SCAT team with interagency representation. When ops said, we think we're done, we'll go out with our interagency team uh, and the original STR form, which has the, the target for operations, the treatment targets, and we'll do an inspection. And if that zone or that section of shoreline meets those criteria, then it gets signed off by the SCAT team. And then that goes back into uh, environmental unit. And we can then say, if it does pass uh, those criteria, so again, another act, we say NF, no further treatment. If no further treatment is required, then we can tick that segment as being off the operations list. So an important role is that progressively, all of these STRs, the work assignments in the 204, progressively each individual one has its own str inspection report form that recommends no further treatment that's how we know when to turn the lights off when the last one of those strs has reached an nft status then the operation is completed and on selling dang that was uh poor year and a half later well working out of dutch harbor actually it was the yes. far side of unimac island right yeah right I, I i wouldn't have been able to turn the lights off fast enough <laughs> <laughs> oh that was that was a beautiful place to work out of you know why it was so isolated <laughs> it was there was a fixed number of people that could be there and so we didn't have this constant um coming and going of people just out of interest. You couldn't get to Dutch just because you were thought it might be interesting. And so the people that were there were the people that were actioning. These are these are all the action people. There were very few people just happened to be there or oh let's go take a look type people, you know. And as a result, it was certainly I, I think one of the most efficient response operations I've been involved in because the numbers of people weren't uh, weren't that great it just goes to show you that these 400 person command posts that we routinely end up seeing do not necessarily represent efficiency correct um they the, the, there's often a desire to make sure that everybody's involved and i mean well, i think one thing that maybe will come out of this past year is that the ability to engage with people as uh, as we're doing remotely um however that's um so which may reduce the number of people in the command post but the one thing that we're lacking right now and right from the get-go the first drill that i was on covid uh, type drill is that you can't go over as as, as a, a shoreline person looking at strategies and tactics or not you can't go over and eavesdrop on what ops are doing not you know it's just like how do you get this information when you're 
in the way it's structured right now, we're segregated into our different virtual rooms. And unless we can multitask and probably have different screens to see what multiple things are going on, we can't eavesdrop on, on, on a lot of things that are happening. And that's, that's a loss of communication. As a, uh, now on drills and exercises, which are focused on meeting certain criteria, that's, a, you know, um, it, well, it doesn't really harm anything. But on a real spill, if you can't go over and sit down with the ops section chief or the shoreline branch supervisor and just talk about things, then you, you, you miss understanding their rhythm and, and what they're thinking and getting their feedback directly because they're the ones that have to go out and do the work and implement the, the program. So, yeah, this remote drilling and exercising and, to, and some, to some extent responding, people learn quite quickly that oh, my, my one little laptop with its screen is, is not enough. Right. I've, I've controlled a bunch of big exercises during COVID and I've done it off of multiple screens, even multiple computers logged into the same team's account multiple times with one ear, one earbud attached to one computer in one room and a, yeah. a different set of earbuds, one of those earbuds in the other ear so that I could literally be right. in two places at, at once, but that is an outlay of 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 hardware and real yeah. estate that you have to be willing to commit to, and it's it makes a it makes a difference. Let's yeah, back it, up for a, a second. You said that you really needed to see an objective on the two hundred two. How would you word that objective if you were looking for unified command to establish an objective that you could work from? What would it say? It would say, if the shoreline has been oiled or is at risk of being oiled, activate a shoreline response program and a SCAT program to minimize shoreline impacts. Okay. I'm writing it down because I might, I might need it. Well, I, I mean, no one's asked that question before, so I think it's a good, it's a good question, um, and it is good. You know, I don't, I don't like to have, uh, and I've been on drills where you know you're presented with a, a, a set of pre-worded objectives, and you just tick them off. I, I think. I would prefer if the incident command team, the command staff could think of them from themselves. So I would say, you know, uh, conduct surveys of impacted shorelines, but something in there that recognizes that shorelines are, are, are a priority. So that when, a, when you put a 213 resource request in, whoever's in the resource unit, if they wanted to, could go and look at those incident objectives and say, wow, this is right up there. This is one of the first priorities. And so I'm going to assign a priority to the resource request that is equal to the other identified objectives. So, and I think to go back, you know, when you say you're 
on water playing with your equipment and stuff, a shoreline response program is not instead of the on water operations. It's, it, it's concurrent, it's at the same time. It's just that the resources tend to get sucked into the offshore right away. So, I, know, I mean, I went down to deep water and I sort of went to the air branch, I'd like a helicopter, please. And the guy sort of, why? Well, I wanted to do some shoreline surveys. And the guy goes, well, I don't know, just put your name on the list. And I said, okay, um, actually just, if I could rephrase this, I, I probably need six helicopters for about six months. <laughs> he looked at me, but at that moment, he, he said, either this guy's really stupid or he means it. And fortunately, he didn't think that I was stupid. Uh, it took a while to organize, but we did get those helicopters. We did get the support that we needed for all those, I mean, flying from Homer down to the Louisiana coast, as opposed to a four hour drive each way to get down to Venice. I mean, so that objective is pretty important because other people such as a resource unit then need to, they can recognize the importance of what's being done. Well, it certainly helps you get what you need onto a 215. Yeah. So that's really the, the first role of the unified command in this process is to establish an appropriate objective that allows this process to go forward with the sense of urgency that it deserves. That's, I, I think, a very good way of phrasing it. Yeah, the sense of urgency that it deserves is very, is what's, it's, it's missing. And it misses, it, it, it's, it's not in drills and exercises. It re, oh no, let me rephrase it. It rarely is. A couple of oil companies recognize the importance of a shoreline response program. And they will probably have that as an objective. But I think generally speaking, most uh, uh, organizations that put on a draw or exercise, it is not one of their first objectives. Well, we know that here in Washington, there's almost no location where you're going to have a spill that there won't be shoreline impacts half an hour later. I mean, it's not going to take a deep water horizon with the spill many miles offshore. It took, I, I can't put an exact number on it, but it was over 30 days before oh, yeah. the first oil came on shore. Maybe it was longer than that. Can you no. tell, do you remember how long it was before we May, had the- May the 5th, May the 6th, the night oh. of- <laughs> Right, so we had a while. Oh, but yeah. I did, but yeah. I just did, you know, my worst case drill where we simulated uh, a tank vessel spill that originated in Rosario Strait. And I guarantee you, that oil was on the shore of Lummi Island, Clark Island, Orcas Island, within a half an hour, within an hour at the most. Exactly. Right. And, and it would have been you know, on these rocky shores and uh, sandy, cobbled right. inlets, and just, and it would have been all over the place. Yeah. And then um, ecology, I can't remember how many years ago, did a study of what it would take to mobilize a shoreline response program, didn't call it that, but a shoreline operation um, of, of, of a significant size. And 
you know, when you've got a, a hundred or so plus kilometers of oiled shoreline, which could likely happen from a large release, um, it, it's it's staggering what you would need in terms of people and you know logistics infrastructure support, particularly because a lot of our coasts. Uh, don't have land access. You, you're talking about water access, water logistics support, and then waste management. It very quickly uh, it very quickly escalates to something that is of major proportions. I mean, we're very fortunate not to have had large spills. I mean, when was the last largest one? Rich Chevron Richmond, a bunch of years ago. Um. Christmas, I can't remember how long ago now. That was the Foss barge, right? Yeah, we um, had the we had that Foss barge. Um, we had uh, Delco Passage in Tacoma, yeah, but right. that was that was still only. Well, I don't think any of it, anybody knows exactly how much, but I think the official number is somewhere in the thousand gallon range yeah. it wasn't even very large and it still lasted for quite some time oh, yes yes uh anchorage in port angeles yeah i remember that that was uh, a big, that was that was a yeah but that was largely contained inside edith yeah inside edith's hook yeah in inside the bay yeah yeah um my first was in ferndale at what at that point at the Ferndale refinery at that time it was operated by Tosco and they had I don't I think it was 400 maybe it was 400 barrels it might have been 400 mm -hmm. I mean I was just driving a boom boat at the time my very first my very first bill I'd worked for clean sound cooperative for like a month and a half yeah. right and and the the cleanup up on water cleanup operations they last they only lasted about 24 hours yeah um but we started up in ferndale at two o'clock in the morning and we ended up south of lummy island by the time the the day was out right and uh, and with our cargo holds chock-a-block full of eelgrass among other things yeah how do you imagine oh it was a mess yeah. all, our, all our all our uh all our Marco belts and yeah. and dip belts were all clogged with eelgrass right. and right. But we haven't had a anything close to a worse case yet yeah. in Washington. Knock on wood. No, it's uh, it's you know we always say it's bound to happen. Well, hopefully it, that's not it's not bound to happen if if we're if everybody's careful uh, and things are getting a lot better these days. So. Well, they well they are they are they are getting better. Let's talk about some uh, things that are a little less command posty, a little more uh, a little more tactical. You've been working with dogs, yeah, to do um, scat work, which <laughs> I think is really cool. Tell us what can a dog do, and how do you oh. train them, and when did you first do it? Well, I'll tell you what a dog can do. Dog can. Um, We've done systematic field trials, carefully controlled field trials. The last ones we did just, just before the COVID clampdown, uh, February of last year, we had weathered oil targets placed five meters, 15 feet below surface 
and the dogs found them all. We had we had five oil types ranging from a Dilbit to a Bunker C, weathered Macondo, a semi-solid Macondo, and tarballs from the Texas Gulf Coast. We we put them at the base of five meter, fifteen foot long pipes in the ground, and the dogs found them pretty much instantaneously. From in fact, the first alerts were over a hundred feet away. The dogs started moving towards. Had picked up the aroma a hundred feet away. Um, they can find subsurface oil. They can uh, quickly uh, find it and then delineate it. They can find weathered oil. Fresh oil is easy peasy, um, but weathered oil we were not so sure about. So um, the two main uses for a dog, and, and they're quick. We use them in uh, North Saskatchewan River. We use them uh, for months. We had four dog teams, four canine scat teams. They were part of the scat team. And they surveyed, you know, over a thousand kilometers of oiled riverbank at 8,000 hits, eight and a half thousand hits that were verified by the, by the SCAT teams themselves. Um, we've had them up in Prince William Sound with uh, Scott Pagot out of Cordova. Uh, we found sequestered oil, it's been there since 1989, uh, deeply buried oil. Um, yeah, so we've, we've, we've got experience with them. Um, We've got a project going on right now uh, with Texas General Land Office to uh, ascertain if they can distinguish between background tarballs, which are very common on the Gulf Coast, and oil from a particular incident. In other words, can they discriminate? Uh, we sort of know they can. We've done it informally, but now we've got a systematic program. So how do you train a dog on the fly to distinguish between this background oil and just like, here, here's here's the oil we just spilled. Yeah. Um, it's a reward, a reward basis. I mean, uh, we've taught dogs to ignore oil concentrations less than a certain threshold because that was a concern. Okay, a dog can find um, something in parts per million. Actually, parts million, per right? million. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, um, we've proved that in the lab. In fact, the dog our instrumentation wouldn't go any lower and the dogs were still reacting. So, but we don't clean up down to parts per million, parts per billion. So we we had a test uh, with American Petroleum Institute, again, part of the last year's program, to, to uh, train a dog to only react at a certain concentration. So that he wouldn't just pick up every single, uh, piece of you know small small amounts so we can train them on concentration to ignore low amounts we can train them uh we've already done this uh informally as i say but we've now got a field program that we're gonna uh it's gonna start this september on the texas gulf coast to discriminate between different oil types um how easy is it training the dog's easy uh, the, a detection dog uh, is um, just trained in, in a different manner to some other dogs, but I mean, it's no different than dogs that um, find cadavers, that find uh, accelerants for arson, that find drugs. Uh, University of Washington uses them to, to uh, find whale scat in, in the bays. 
you know, from the from the deck of a boat. Um, teaching a dog to de- I mean, dogs like to smell things. <laughs> yes, they do. So we 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 work on their enjoyment, they, their, their, their reward. You, you see a dog that's found a target and he gets the treat. I mean, this is what it's all about. Dogs want to be happy. And we make them happy and we use that motivation uh, to find oil and, you know, f- find it in different concentrations and different types. Actually, it all started in um, Norway, in Arctic Norway, as part of one of the JIP programs, um, uh, joint industry uh, program, research program, where a chemist who had a, uh, a pet long-haired dachshund, okay? Mm-hmm. Imagine a long-haired dachshund being used as a detection dog. And uh, so Per Johan Brandvik is his name. He trained his dog to look for oil. He's a chemist. He, he's an oil spill chemist at Sintet. And he just thought he'd be interesting to see if he could train his dog to do that. And he took his dog up to Svalbard at about 80 degrees north in, in the high Arctic. And we had had a shoreline experiment back then in 19... 19- 98 and we had left some control plots we had cleaned up some shorelines and we'd left some control plots and um he took his dog and he found those control plots which were two feet or over two feet two and a half feet under the sediment and that dog found them and i visited him in uh trondheim a couple of years later and he showed me how the dogs worked and then I was down at Klingolf, or I can't remember which year it was, 2003 or four. And um, there was a chap there called Paul Bunker, who's ex-British Army, who had developed techniques for detecting mines and unexploded ordnance in Northern Ireland and uh, in Bosnia. And so here's a man who had trained on, who had trained the detection canines and developed the protocols so we were having a chat in the corridor. See, this is how things happen in the non-virtual world. You run into somebody in the corridor and you chat about something. And it's the old smile test. You know, if you see a smile on the face for about two seconds, you know it's not a very good idea. But if you see someone smiling and nodding their head for five seconds, there's a little interest that sparked there. Well, my head was nodding and my smile lasted about 10 minutes because I could just envisage taking this technology, the protocols that he developed for mines and unexploded ordnance to find an oil. And so Paul and I, I still work with Paul, um, he and I got together and put this proposal together for API, um, which was uh, funded in 2015. And that was the first systematic field trials that we conducted. Um, and we had, uh, you know, we had a, a, a guest and visitors program and people from uh, industry. Uh, some of the oil companies showed up. Uh, FIMSA from Pipeline showed up. A couple of Coast Guards showed up. Um, James Hanslick from uh, Clean Golf showed up. And you could see they all had the big smile and the five minute smile test and they all 
walked away from that saying, wow. And so we've been fortunate to have a few, you know, projects and a few spills since then. So I'll have to can up a 213 canine scat teams. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We call them canine scat teams. K, letter K, number nine. Uh, it's, a, it's a separate mission in all these lists of scats. But I tell you where they're important, Dan, because in deep water, we dug at least 300,000 pits. And now the most any scat team can do in a day is about 100. Some, you know, maybe a couple of hundred at the most. That's an amazing amount of effort, particularly when most of them don't have any oil in them. You just, you're looking for it. Dogs can find that. They, you don't need to, a dog can do several kilometers in an hour. And when a dog gives you an alert, then you can dig a pit. So it's a triage. Plus, a, and on every spill, about 60% of the scat survey mileage is, uh, records no observed oil. That's a hell of a lot of effort. To, to just clear an area. The dog can clear that at five miles an hour, whereas we walking uh, are not as quick and we get tired more quickly, or we sit on an ATV and we do a rush job. A dog can, we call it quartering, a dog can zigzag, 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 and cover a tremendous amount of, of territory with a very high level of confidence and a low risk that there's no oil there. So clearing then gets rid of uh, that burden we have of, of having to do it manually, you know, as a pedestrian or on an ATV. And, and, and those SCAT teams can then spend their time better elsewhere, like doing SCAT ops liaison. Yeah. Um, so where there's subsurface oil, they're definitely going to find it quicker than any, any, any field team can do, and they're going to clear areas faster than any field team can do. So there's two immediate huge advantages in terms of manpower and effort that they can, they, they're a game changer. They really are, uh, even for those low level types of activities, because they free up the sort of, you know, the high priced help, if you like, to go and go do work elsewhere. Well, I look forward to talking to you more about those when I see you in person at Clean Pacific. Yeah. How about drones? Uh, well, we use those. Uh, there are, as we get fewer restrictions, they can be used um, more frequently. Uh, that, that, that's the only limitation right there, is the, the line of sight issue. Uh, we use them up in the North Saskatchewan River, uh, where you've got a, a, like places like mud flats and wetlands where you know, we have to tromp through there or up to our ankles, knees, waist, sometimes in, in mud. Uh, it's slow going, it's hard work just to clear an area of having no oil. So we had drones and dogs in, in um, the North Saskatchewan River spill. Uh, the, the drones were, were great because they, you could real time do that quick triage to look for the large concentrations of oil and find them in some of the back bays and the nooks and the crannies. They, um, and I think 
they don't really need a scat person. I mean, it's quite easy to uh, train and calibrate a, a drone operator, a pilot, uh, or somebody who's working with the pilot, because we're looking for the bulk oil, and it's usually big and black or big and brown. Right at the beginning of a spill, when drones can be really useful, they can find those heavy concentrations. They would have been great on Costco Busan because um, it was foggy for the first three days or two days, and we couldn't get up in the air to look for those concentrations. Whereas a drone, if that could have been deployed, we would have more quickly found those bulk oil concentrations and would have been able to remove those before they got redistributed. So dogs and drones, you know, they're great toys, but they are also not toys. They are also uh, very serious new tools that uh, really improve our, our capabilities and our efficiencies. Yeah, we very successfully used the drone for the first time in response, at least my first time in response, during the Aleutian Falcon fire in Tacoma just a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was a great tool. I, I've talked about that already on the podcast, so I won't reiterate, but uh, an awesome, an awesome tool. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was because this is kind of the topic of the day subsea scat. Yeah. Non floating oil is the big topic. We're going to have a seminar about it next week. Um, uh, clean uh, rivers. Uh, the um, um, MFSA is hosting a, a seminar. Everybody's been required to update their response plans to uh, show how they're going to deal with it. And uh, I hear there's a subsea scat manual, which I've never seen, but that yeah. is in existence. Tell me about yeah. subsea scat. Well, yeah, there is a, it's called USCAT. Oh, USCAT, okay. And I didn't, I didn't come up with that one, but um, yeah, there, there is a USCAT manual. There's also API um, have a, uh, a subsurface oil detection manual as well that was put together all oh, three or four years ago. And so uh, we've looked at the manuals and we, we've looked at, you know, we, we have these, developed these manuals that help us. Um, and you can, you can see the limitations and that's, I think when you think of underwater oil, subsurface, subwater surface oil, it, it, it's the limitations that are the real issues. Um, and I'm going to just uh, say that we are, we have shown, um, and we, we have a, um, a Bessie US uh, Naval Research Lab project under, underway right now. We're using dogs to find oil on the, uh, on the lake bed. We've already done it. On the lake bed, what's the depth? Oh, 10, 15 feet. That's all we're doing. I mean, this is, we're just going through proof of concept right now. Um, but just as the you know, University of Washington use uh, dogs to find whale scat, we, can, we have used dogs already in Saskatchewan in the river. Uh, we didn't, we weren't looking for it, but they have, they have detected uh, oil that's in several, up to 10 feet of water that we know of. And they're doing it from the deck of a boat? They're on the boat, yeah. you're driving in the river or? That, that's what we're doing right now down in the Texas Lake. Okay. Yeah. We have underwater targets that are sealed and uh, 
will only allow the um, the light end molecules through. So there's no oiling. So the oil's in the target, and the dog is alerting onto the uh, the airborne molecules that go up through the water column. So a little little toluene, xylene. Yeah. Well, even even um, even higher stuff than that. Um, we're using weathered uh, West Texas crude, so a lot of the light ends are gone already. We're going to try them with tarballs uh, pretty soon as well. But, so the, tr the, the trouble with underwater scat is that it, it's, it's just this ability to see, you can't see it very well. And so all of the tools that we've been using so far are either been some type of electronic signal, which have um, pluses and minuses, um, or you know underwater videos and things like that, which also have everything has a plus and a minus. See, dogs have pluses and minuses, but the trick is to I think go through the USCAP manual, go through the API subsurface uh, oil detection manual. There's a lot of work been done already, uh, and I, I would say my opinion is. As helpful as it is, these manuals are. They, it's it's still a very difficult job, but it can be done. Fascinating. When are we, we going to be able to hear you speak next? Are you presenting at Clean Pacific? Yeah. Uh, yes, on dogs. On dogs. <laughs> well, then I'll get to see it with slides. Yeah. Well, there's uh, we've got a website uh, that with some videos on, but it's. We haven't, uh, funnily enough, all this free time apparently that we've had over the past year, we have not managed to do as many of the things that we wanted to do. So, but um, I managed yeah, to start a podcast. Well, uh, well, I've got walking the shores with Ed. If you've ever seen that, mm -mm. Ah. I have it. www all without any break. www walking the shore with Ed. And is and it I is it YouTube or is it? it it's a web. It, it'll take you to a website, and uh, I've only done about eleven of them so far. Just walking out of my office uh, down to the beaches of Bainbridge Island and talking about different things. Okay, www walking the shores with Ed without the S. Look on my um on the email I sent you. It's at the bottom there. Okay, I will. I'm going to go check it out. There's the, the, the best one is the one where I'm playing with a football on the beach. So. <laughs> okay, there. we'll check we'll check it out. And everybody else listening to the podcast, go check <laughs> check out www walking the shore with Ed. If somebody wants to come contact you for support with SCAD or Shoreline Cleanup, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Ed at owenscoastal.com. Dot com. Well, Dr. Ed Owens. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I really appreciate it. Dan, I enjoyed it. And I, I really appreciate uh, the questions because uh, I think your perspective is a, a different one than mine. And I hope I've been able to uh, provide you with some of the answers to those questions. You have, it's been very helpful. I'm gonna share it with all of my incident commanders. Maybe we're taking a step towards making sure that shoreline cleanup is begun early and aggressively.
Thank you for joining myself and Dr. Owens for the tactics meeting. If you enjoyed the program, please send a link to a colleague or a friend. Next week, we'll have Dr. Tom Coolbaugh from OMSET, formerly of ExxonMobil, who's going to talk to us about the properties of petroleum hydrocarbons. Until next time.